Hi everyone, welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast, where we explore important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. I'm your host, Manisha. In this special collaboration with Paul from Alternative CV, we speak to Dr. Leslie Tay, who runs an award-winning food blog, I Eat, I Shoot, I Post, alongside his medical practice. We explore how his love for food came about and his endeavours to share beloved recipes that are at the heart of our hawker culture. We discuss why our hawker culture is important and challenging to preserve, as well as actions that we can take as individuals. Finally, Dr. Leslie shares his experience as a food blogger, emphasising the role that food can play in bringing communities together. So Dr. Leslie, going back to the start of your food venture, how did your love for food begin? I think we are all born either to love food, love music, love art. Some people, like my wife for instance, she loves music and for her music comes very naturally. So those of us who are born with a love for food, we gravitate towards food. Are there early childhood memories where you're like, I really enjoy trying different things and then it came from there? I think I've always enjoyed food, even as a kid, and enjoyed being in the kitchen. When my grandma first taught me how to make an omelette, it was my first ever dish that I made. It was just something that I felt very comfortable doing. My mom is a catering chef. That also has some influence on it. A lot of us have a love for food, but you also have a passion for cooking. How did this come about? I think if you love to eat, it sort of follows naturally for me. If I eat something that is really nice, I want to be able to recreate it and, and try to do it at home. I think we are all born with different talents. and We are all born with different interests. When you talk to uh, someone who loves music, they can easily listen to a piece and then work out what instruments are there, how many parts. So you're born to be a musician. For me, it's like I'm born with this ability to taste something outside. And then in my mind, I can deconstruct it and work it out so that I can recreate the dish. For example, a few years ago, I was invited to go overseas to talk to the students. The thing they really miss about home is the McDonald's McNugget curry sauce. So I said, oh, McNugget curry sauce can't be that difficult to do. So you tasted McNugget curry sauce, then in your head, you start to deconstruct all the different ingredients that come together to make up the taste, the texture of McNugget curry sauce. So you just take all these ingredients, then you put them together, and lo and behold, you create something that is very close or even better than the McNugget curry sauce. To me, it's very natural. I just look at it and I just taste it and I go, okay, roughly it's like this... You put it together and yeah, it works. I think what's unique about your hobby is that you decided to then share it with the world. So where did yeah. that impetus come from? As doctors, we are trained to share knowledge. I mean, medicine is something that if you discover something, you're not going to keep it to yourself. You're going to write a paper and then you're going to share it all around. And um, for me personally, I started writing about hawker food. Yeah, I realized that a lot of the hawker stories have not been written down. So I started to write down all the stories of, you know, where Hokkien Mee comes from, where Bakute comes from. And then from there, you talk to the hawkers and then you start to learn a few tips about how they make the Bakute, how they make the Hokkien Mee. And then what concerned me was that the next generation of Singaporeans may not have this knowledge. And then you go onto the internet and you see all the Western chefs sharing how you make a lasagna, how you make a hamburger. But when it comes to Hokkien Mee, you don't have that many people who know how to really make Hokkien Mee. You don't, you don't get to see the hawker going online to show people how to 
cook a hockey meal or ha chong kai, for example. So I took it upon myself to learn from all these hawkers and then put it online with the hope that the next generation hawker wants to know how to make any of the dishes that they can just refer to my YouTube page or my blog and then at least get the foundation, some basic understanding of what this thing is all about. Then they can go ahead and develop their own recipe. So that's good because unlike a hawker who has one recipe or a family recipe, you're not going to share it. Because once you share it, everybody else can do it, then you lost your rice bowl. But for me, I have nothing to lose because I have got my clinic. So I don't earn a living out of frying Hokkien Mee. So it's okay for me to then share it with the world. You talked about family's recipe being passed down to the next generation. But I'm actually seeing more modern hawkers adding a modern twist to the traditional recipe. What do you think about that? At the end of the day, you want to cook something that everybody wants to eat. And different generations have different needs and different preferences. Also, if today you try to recreate a recipe from 50 years ago, you'll be faced with one problem is that the ingredients they have today are different from the ingredients we have 50 years ago. 50 years ago, we used to have our own pigs. We used to have all these farms on the island, right? Now, the vegetables, the pigs, they taste different. So if they taste different and still use the same recipe, you're not going to get the same dish. So every generation has got to adapt to the situation. So who knows, 50 years from now, we are all eating plant burgers. So if you're going to use some lab-grown meat to recreate a hamburger, you're not going to be able to do it with the same method. So you have to modify it, you've got to modernize it in order to bring back a flavor that everybody likes. And every generation has different preferences as well. The thing with the hawker is when the hawkers first came into the picture, right? Singapore was a developing country, let's say turn of the 19th century, 1800s, 1900s. They were all coming from China, from India, and they were coolies. So the cooking methods were very, very simple. You had one wok and then you cook everything with that one wok. But nowadays with us, modern technology, we've got ovens, we've got sous vide machines and we've got all this different equipment. So, so one of those things that I'm trying to do is take a traditional recipe and then just ask yourself, okay, this was done 50 years ago. Grandma used to do it this way, but we don't necessarily have to do it the same way if there is a newer, better way, more efficient way of doing it and getting mm. a better flavor. Don't we do that instead of clinging on to the original recipe? There must be progress. So a lot of the things that I'm trying to develop with regards to all these traditional recipes is to say, can I do it simpler? Can I do it better? So for instance, if you're trying to cook chicken for chicken rice, traditionally boil in the pot, so scientifically, we know that chicken, it cooks at a certain temperature. The breast meat, the thigh meat cooks at a certain temperature. So if you want to improve on the texture of the chicken, what you need to do is to, instead of following the old recipe, you can start to now control the temperature of the water in which you poach the chicken. And then you work out what is the optimum temperature and what is the optimum amount of time that you push the chicken in order so that the proteins don't contract and then become hard and tough. So to answer your question, what the young hawkers are doing is they're applying today's knowledge to a traditional recipe to make the traditional recipe better. Just because it's traditional doesn't mean it's better. We all have the preconceived idea that the traditional is better. Actually, that's not always true. Lah. As we progress, there are a lot of things that are actually getting better than what we had in the past when everything was much simpler. So that's one of those things that we need to get out of the way. You know, We don't have to say, oh, you need to do it traditionally so that it's better. If you eat a satay that is done 50 years ago today, you probably won't like it as much. Mm. 
one satay stall in the Bendemir that is still selling satay like from 50 years ago and the prices are still 30 cents and he's still using the same ingredients as he did in the past few decades when he first started. So you eat the satay, you go, not so nice eh. But those are the days that they did satay that way lah. Then along the way, people have started to improve on putting more ingredients, making it more like this and that and the other. And so now we are used to the newer version of the satay. I actually like the new version better than the old version. And it's necessarily so because we continue to improve on the recipe as the time goes by. Let's talk about Malaysia and Singapore food. We Singaporeans always think, oh, Malaysian food are so good. And then actually the Malaysians are saying that, hey, actually Singapore food is so good. You know why? Because our dollar buys better stuff. As a population of people, we are more able to afford better quality ingredients. So you go to Malaysia and you eat the bakute, right? The bakute, you always use the innards and then the parts of the pork that they use is all the small little bits and pieces, you know. You're not going to get the nice long prime rib that you get in Singapore. And the reason we have it in Singapore is because we can afford it because of the purchasing power of Singaporeans. You talk about this need to preserve our hawker culture, which has actually been added to the UNESCO list of intangible cultural heritage. What does preserving our hawker culture mean on an individual level? The main challenge is to have enough young hawkers to take over from the old hawkers. Because when you look at the population of hawkers now with the NEA hawker stalls, the mean age is about 40s and 50s. You don't see so many young hawkers. And then you ask yourself, okay, so if these people in 10 or 20 years time retire, who are the people who are going to take over? So this is where the alarm was sounded. I sounded the alarm in 2010 when I published my book, The End of Chakwetiao. I wrote a piece about how Chakwetiao hawkers look as if they're retiring and nobody's taking over their place. Ten years later, I would say that the situation is more dire than ten years ago. Ten years ago, those hawkers, some of them already passed on and then some of them retired. But there are no new Chakwetiao stars on the horizon to actually take their place. When I was growing up in the 70s, if you ask people what is the number one hawker food, Chakwitiao would probably be up there in one, top one, two, three. Yeah. The thing is, Chakwitiao is just not as popular as before. And Chakwitiao is always sold for three or four dollars. It can't seem to break out of that of that perception people get with Chakwitiao. Basically, Chakwitiao is just carb and lard. So it's not exactly health food. And we doctors are always telling our patients not to eat Chakwitiao. So as you can see, because of this negative publicity, Chakwitiao is really... Uh, in the last 10 years, no new Chakwetiao hawkers coming up. Yes, there are a few young hawkers who are frying Chakwetiao, but they took over from their parents' store. So I wrote this story about why I feel that it's the end of Chakwetiao unless we do something about it. And it got expanded to the whole hawker culture. In 2010, I don't think many people were actually talking much about preserving hawker culture because we were taking for granted that it was just going to be like that. Since then, in the last 10 years, I think people have been talking about this. And finally, we got this UNESCO list, which means that the government will now put some money behind preserving our hawker culture. Because a lot of things need to be done. And they've already started doing some things, like giving out awards to promising new hawkers, giving out awards to heritage hawkers who have been doing the thing for 50 years. I think people are starting to realise that, hey, this is our heritage. This is something that we can be proud about. This is something that we can do more marketing to the world. When people come to Singapore, yes, they know there's hawker food in Singapore, but 
They go to the same old hawker centres in town, in Maxwell Road, Amoy Street, or Newton. Lah. And they think that that's all about our hawker culture. But our hawker culture is much more than that. What makes Singapore unique is the fact that we organise ourselves into new towns, Topayo, Amokyo, Japanese, whatever. And then every town will have a, a whole set of flats. All these flats will surround the hawker centre and the wet market. So the hawker centre wet market becomes the nucleus of that town. So this one makes us unique. And we haven't really sold this idea to the world. That means to say, if you are a tourist and come to Singapore, don't just go to Newton Hawker Centre, go to Amokyo Hawker Centre and, and see the way we live, you see. I mean, where else in the world do people live like us? Go down the flat, got Hawker Centre, got wet market, got barber, got clinic, <laughs> convenient, right? MRT station. This is the kind of thing that we all take for granted. I mean, especially COVID-19, uh, lockdown, you suddenly are trapped in your flat and the nearest place you can get food is your downstairs coffee shop or the, or the hawker center. Then you realize that, hey, we are actually living in a community. Huh? And so this is our culture. This is the way we do things in Singapore. It needs to be preserved. It needs to be celebrated. We need to give the hawkers some recognition. The older generation of Singaporeans look down on hawkers because you become a hawker only when you basically have nothing else to do. Very low level work. They really do look down on them. I mean, I talked to some of the old hawkers. They really tell me that in the past, the power distance between the classes are much more in the past. Like, even in the past, nobody looked up to they don't respect them very much. So I talked to some of these young hawkers uh, and they feel it as well. If they were maybe working in the financial industry and then decided, hey, I want to be a hawker. Then become a hawker and suddenly nobody respects them anymore. Like, you know, last time when they were wearing tie, nice suit, people talk to them nicely. Now they are hawkers selling noodles. People talk down to them. So these are the challenges. Why young people don't want to be hawkers? Well, who want to be a hawker when you can't earn that much money and people look down on you. So we have this prejudice and we Singaporeans don't want to pay so much for our food. We always think that, oh, if it's hawker food, it's $3. Whereas if I go and eat a bowl of pasta and you happily bring $10, $12. But when it comes to Hokkien Mee, right, you cannot pay more than 4 bucks. Why? I mean, can you imagine aglio olio? It's just pasta with garlic and oil. <laughs> I mean, how can that be more expensive than a plate of Hokkien Mee that is fried with nice prawn stock? Why? Doesn't make sense. Even if it was in a hawker center, you can still buy that plate of aglio olio for six bucks mm. and people won't complain. You try to sell Hokkien Mee for six bucks in a hawker center, people complain. So we have this prejudice uh, against our own food and which is why a young person who wants to go and open a hawker store, if he has a choice between selling pasta and Hokkien Mee, pasta can earn six dollars a plate, Hokkien Mee only earn three dollars a plate. Which one do you do? Just to pick up on you, you know what you were saying about the problem why young people are not going to being hawkers, both like profitability and kind of prestige, right? Some of these more popular hawkers stalls have been in a way franchised and then they've been made into standalone kind of restaurants, like Hawker Chan kind of. What do you think about that model, yeah? So in the last few years, there have been a lot of this going on. Unfortunately, a lot of them don't do very well. Out of 10 new franchises that have come from I would say about 8 of them are not very good. Quality has gone down. They haven't been able to replicate the original hawker's uh, recipe that well. Only one or two maybe, they do a good job. I think Singaporeans try to do too much too quickly. I mean, you, you can't open so many stalls suddenly and expect the standard to be there. 
there are some who are taking their time to expand and they seem to do better because you need to really keep an eye on ingredients, processes and in order to make sure that the quality of your dish tastes the same. But by and large, every time the hawker goes franchise, uh, it goes off my rate because most of them just can't keep the standard. There's still, so a lot to be done in that area, I feel. You need to learn from the Japanese how they keep the processes so good so that if you expand your ramen shop to 20, 30 shops, everyone is still doing the same thing and your quality doesn't go down. We have seen a shift in the use of food delivery services to get our hawker food. So do you think we are losing the part of hawker culture where people from all walks of life come together to dine in a communal space? There are some foods that do okay on a delivery platform, but others that just cannot just doesn't taste good when you deliver. Roti prata, I mean, has to be eaten there, I feel. So I would never, ever pack roti prata. I always insist that I go there and buy my roti prata. I always insist that it make fresh. You know, if I see them, they put the prata there and say, no, 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 I'll wait for the fresh one. It make me the fresh one. In every population, there will be people like me who insist and then people like you who don't mind. So as long as you don't mind, that's fine. I mean, if you use food, is just getting in the way of your work. You just intend on working and the food is just like, I have to fill my tummy right? or else I, I'll run out of gas. The, unfortunately, Singaporeans are like that. We value work. We're not like the French who will spend two hours eating and enjoying life. Dr. Lassie, I wanted to ask about your blog, right? It's not just I eat, but also I shoot and I post. I was just wondering whether there was anything special that you did in terms of teaching yourself photography or writing skills. Photography is also one of those things that you're born with, I think. I've given quite a few photography classes and you know that in a, in a class of 50 people, some people just have it and some people don't. Some people, you give them a camera and within a short period of time, the photos are coming out nice. So for me, I, I mean, I'm fortunate that came quite naturally to me. And then the writing, I mean, I don't consider myself a writer. Doctors are very practical people. We just say what we need to say and that's it. I don't think i ever be able to be a writer. So my writing is very simple, straightforward. Just a few musings and things like that. Beyond just writing and taking pictures, you start off a blog, but then obviously now, since the time the blog started, there's been an explosion of all this. Like now, like Instagram, Instagram TV, Facebook groups, YouTubes, blogs. Have you found that there's one avenue that you have the most traction with people in? My Facebook page seems to be the more active followed by Instagram. The blogs nowadays, not so much as before. Maybe 10 years ago, people were actually logged in and mm. read what you just publish. But nowadays, people are being fed from Facebook and Instagram more than blogs. They go to searching for it. They, they get a news feed mm. so they get fed. Unless, of course, they are looking for something specific. Where is the best chakritya? Then they will go and search for it. People don't tend to read as much nowadays. Do you find yourself changing the way you present this information to you know your readers or say to people watch your YouTube videos? Yeah, well, we are doing more videos now because we find that people respond better to videos and we actually read. It's changed a little bit. You not only share about food, but you also have a tab on your blog talking about doing good. So I feel like you have taken the notion of food bringing people together to the next level where you actually gather your resources and do something more for society. So how did this idea come about and why did you choose to use this avenue to get that support? If I wasn't doing the food blog, I'll be still doing something at the side to help other people. I think that is a very important part of our lives, no matter what you do. Whatever profession you're in or whatever resources you have in your hand, that is part and parcel of what it means to live 
uh, well-balanced life is to have one part where you are thinking of others. You spend some time thinking of other people. I think as human beings, our outlook on life has got to be pursuit of not just happiness, but pursuit of meaning or pursuit of purpose. And if you are trying to pursue meaning and purpose, it always tends to gravitate into helping other people. I mean, every human being needs to have a sense of purpose. If you live life just satisfying your hungers, it really is very meaningless. So to, to derive meaning in life is, I think, one of the most important aspects of being a human being. You say you're going to a new country. Do you have any go-to ways in which you research about food? Do you have a certain strategy when you are approaching a completely new kind of terrain? Look at other people's blog. So it's like an internet research first? Or do you speak to people there? Well, well, I'm quite fortunate because people invite me to go overseas. So when you get an invitation to come, then they'll just plan the itinerary for you. And then mm. they want to show you all the things that are quite interesting. So for instance, when I went to Tangling Hall, I mean, I didn't have to do much research because mm. those people, they already they set up or you go and see this, you go and talk to this hotel. So, so it's, it's all the itinerary is planned out for me, which is great. I guess that's my privilege since I have this blog. Sometimes people from different countries, they invite you over and they just plan the whole thing for you. So you get access to places that you wouldn't otherwise have as a normal tourist. In the last few months, we visited a high-tech fish farm off Pasir Ris, which was quite fun. We visited a high-tech vegetable farm in Lim Chukang, which unless you are doing something like you're not going to get access to it. So most of the time, instead of me doing the research, all these things are coming to me through emails. Would you like to do this one? Would you like to discover this and that and the other? So you get to a place where you're being fed all this information rather than you having to go out and search for them. Have you found any other indirect tangential benefits of running this blog? Slightly more specifically, any ways in which embarking on this passion project besides your medical career has somehow influenced your medical practice? The two things for me is a balance. I don't have an afternoon clinic session. I'm not a typical GP that works from 8 in the morning to 9 at night. And then in my afternoons, I meet people, go and eat a few things and discover things. So for me, it's a nice balance. Dr. Leslie, thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you so much. Very nice to talk to you all.